0: I got stuck in Matthew chapter 1 this week, which is a strange place to get stuck um, because it's not the most riveting start to a book, Matthew chapter 1. Let me read the first verse, which is primarily where, where I really got stuck in the first verse, but the whole first sort of 17 verses of Matthew 1 aren't really what's going to grab you and hold on to you in the modern world. It says in verse 1 that this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we have a big, long list of names. And at the end of the list of names, verse 16 says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, if you're reading Matthew chapter 1 for the first time, maybe a young Christian, and you're just trying to get your head around what is actually going on, and you get this list of names. Run your eye down Matthew 1 in your Bible. You just get this big, long list of names, and you'll think, what on earth is actually going on? What is that all about? Is that meant to mean anything to me? It's called a genealogy, and you'll get them all through the Bible because they do mean a lot to God's people. And you struggle through this list of names and numbers. There's one brief moment of humor in the middle of it, in verse 5, where you meet a guy called Salmon. But apart from that, it's pretty bleak reading. All these names, name after name after name after name. And you wonder, what is actually going on here? Matthew did not write the first gospel. Mark wrote the first gospel, but Matthew ended up being at the start of the New Testament. Probably because he bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament best. He's got more references that are clear and explicit back to the Old Testament than the other gospel writers do. And he starts off his his gospel with this phrase, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the second Sunday in Advent. And what I'm trying to do for the four Sundays in Advent is just preach from these passages that we're so familiar with, particularly at this time of year. And and look at at the truths that are held there about the Savior that came. And as Matthew begins chapter 1, He literally says, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And he uses the word Genesis in the original language. And he points us back to obviously the book of Genesis itself, which is all about creation and focuses in very much on the week of creation, the six days in which God did all the work of creation and the seventh day on which he said, it's complete and it's finished. And from that time onwards, the number seven, we're going, we're going to do a wee number thing this morning. You need to stay plugged in or you're not going to get it. The number seven for God's people became a number that represented completeness and perfection. Because it was the day when God said, finished, everything done, chaos has been brought into order. That's a phrase we like to use here and we use it a lot. We refer over and over again to the fact that Jesus has brought the chaos of our lives back into order. And Matthew wants to know from the first verse that he is going to go now for 28 chapters and talk about the one who does the work of creation. The one who does the work of new creation. Who takes the chaos of our lives and brings that chaos back into order. Any physicists in the house? Yeah, scientists, physicists. Oh, look, there's one there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to ask the question for. <laughs> any, any, anybody remember the second law of thermodynamics? No. No. Oh, you're very quiet. No. no well, in the in, in the second law of thermodynamics in physics, it basically says everything tends to become more disordered more chaotic if things are left to themselves they will become more and more disordered untidy think about your bedroom children if your bedroom is left and not attended to will it get tidier or will it get messier mhm and just think about life in general what happens when we don't intentionally bring order what happens to your calendar What happens to your schedule unless you actually bring order to it? Linda and I have to basically put an iron fence around the calendar and be ruthless about what we allow in. Otherwise, it just becomes this chaotic mess where we literally on occasions have to be two or three different places at the same time. Everything tends towards chaos. Relationships, the important relationships in your life. If you don't invest in them and bring order to them, they will become chaotic and they will become broken. Finances. If you don't order them, if you don't have a budget, if you don't live within your means, chaos comes in. So everything in life tends to become more and more chaotic unless somebody brings order to it. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the one who's going to do a work of new creation in the chaos of our lives. This, this baby that will be born that he's introducing at the start of his gospel is the one that does Genesis. He does creation. He brings order. I know from, from chatting to Linda about various situations that, that, that we both encounter. Sometimes we just sit and we are amazed at the sheer mess that some people manage to get into. The chaos of, of, and of their lives. And, and you, you sit and you look and you think, where do you start? It's like when Samuel comes and presents his shoe to me with a dozen knots in it, all one on top of the other, and asks me to unravel them all. That's what some people's lives are like. It's just a mess. And where do you start? But Jesus knows how to bring order where there is chaos. Chaos and to bring structure where lives are fallen to pieces. So he says this is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. And then he goes through this list of names, this this genealogy. It's like your CV when you go to apply for a job and you want to bring your credentials, your criteria for why you should have it. This in the ancient world was like a CV. You had to prove your heritage. You had to be able to prove your background. And nearly all of the Jews would be able to go back to Abraham and say, I'm descended from Abraham, which is where Matthew starts this list of names. A small number of Jews would be able to bring their heritage through David, who is mentioned in verse 6. And a very, very small number would be able to bring their heritage through all the kings after David. Not many people. A handful, only a handful, could possibly have a lineage like the one that Matthew lists here. And when Matthew lists this, this is a massive declaration to Herod and to Caesar and to anyone else who would claim to be king. He basically wheels out this list of names and say, you have overlooked somebody. You have overlooked the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. There is somebody coming out of the darkness, coming out of the shadows, and you should be very, very afraid of him because he has the history and he has the background that means he is the rightful heir to the throne. That's why Herod was so brutal and so ruthless about killing children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born because he knew that this background meant Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne and he wanted to wipe him out as soon as possible. And this list, now if you think a list of names is not exciting, I'm going to show you that it is exciting. I'm not going to go through every name, don't get scared about that, I'm not going to explain who they are, but this, the way Matthew has written this is as exciting as it gets for the start of a book in the first century in Israel. Really, some of you are looking at me as if to say you've lost your marbles that you think this is exciting, but this is as good as it gets. The way that Matthew structures this and places Jesus at the end of it would have people in the first century in a complete frenzy of excitement. And the way that I sort of thought about this as I wanted to get an illustration that you might be able to connect with is concerts. Have you been to a concert? Tell tell me you've been to gigs. Yeah, everybody, most people have been to a gig at some stage. You have. Lies. Really? Oh, bless Right, um, anyway, here's, here's the sort of scheme and the build-up to it. Concert is quite, an, I get quite excited about concerts, but there's, there's a build-up to it. There's the announcement that the event is going to take place. That might happen a year before. And then the tickets, there's a date for the tickets to be released and you're starting to get a wee bit excited. And then there is the morning that they're released, 9 a.m. on Ticketmaster. Come on, tell me you have experienced 9 a.m. on Ticketmaster. None of you have. Oh, some of you have. What do the rest of you be doing with your lives? 9 a.m. Ticketmaster, you're in your classroom. You've locked the door. You've closed the curtains. You've threatened children that if they come anywhere near you, you're just not having it, and you're sitting there at the laptop, refresh, refresh, refresh. You're breaking out in a cold sweat. You're sort of twitchy, and you're waiting. It's called the Ticketmaster shakes in the game. And you're waiting for that moment that your slot opens, and you get your tickets, and you're excited, and you get your tickets, Hopefully. And then you have to wait for months, waiting. Last week we talked about waiting. We talked about how Advent was a season of waiting in the dark for the light to come. And then the day comes, and you have to queue because you want a good spot because there's going to be a lot of people there, and you want to be close to the front. So you queue. Now, we've only done the all-day queuing once, but it was worth it. It was outside the Stade de France in Paris and it was worth it. So you queue and you're waiting again. Again, you're in that posture of waiting and you're getting excited. You're bored for you've talked about everything two people can talk about. uh, Stuck there in the queue surrounded by people who talk a different language. And you're waiting and waiting and then there's a wee bit of excitement because the gates open and you're allowed into the venue and into the venue and you run to the front and then the excitement quickly fades because you're waiting again for another two or three hours before the the musicians come to the stage and there's background music playing all the time. And as eight o'clock approaches, as each song ends, you're thinking, I wonder, is that the last song? And is this going to be the start of the gig? And you're you're, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then another song comes on over the speakers and you're sort of hanging out. It's five past eight and it's 10 past eight and you're getting more and more frustrated and excited. And then a song stops And you wait five seconds and there's no other song comes on. And you wait ten seconds and there's no other song comes on. And then the house lights go off and there's just bedlam. all right? There's just this frenzy of excitement. Finally, the moment has come and the star attraction is going to come on the stage. That's what Matthew is doing with these names. Watch this carefully. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he says that he has listed 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, I've hit the physics people, let's hit the maths people. What numbers divide into 14? You're taking too long. Seven, okay, that's the one I was looking for. Seven divides into 14. Now, stay with me here. Matthew lists three sets of 14 names. Now, if you were a Jew hearing this, you were not hearing necessarily three sets of 14 names. You were hearing six sets of seven names. Now, what book did Matthew reference at the start? This is the Genesis, yeah? So he then lists six sets of seven names that will match up with the six days of creation. And what he does is he presents Jesus... First of all, with a genealogy. And the Jewish readers are thinking, yes, this is good. We've got a genealogy. We know we're dealing with somebody important here. He starts with Abraham. And the Jewish readers are thinking, yeah, good, like this. And then he gives 14 names. And the Jewish readers are like, well, hang on. That's two sevens. We like the number seven because that's the number of perfection and completeness. This is getting better. And then he gives another 14 names and they're thinking, yes, now we've got four sets of seven. This is looking really good. We like this because we're Jews and this appeals to us. And then he gives another 14 names and by this stage they're thinking, we've got six sets of seven and we're waiting now for what's going to happen. We've got all of these names all the way up to Mary. Joseph and Mary. And at this point, Matthew has his readers on this cusp of excitement that something incredible is about to happen. At this point when he says that Joseph was the husband of Mary, that's the end of the six sets of seven. The house lights have gone off. The music has stopped. And you're ready for the main event to come to the stage. And he says then in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. There is no way that he could have pitched this in a bigger and more dramatic fashion than he did for his readers. He's done everything right and he's left them in this frenzy of anticipation. What name is going to come next? The name that comes next is the name of Jesus. He is the climax of Everything. Everything. Through the dark waiting of a 2,000-year Advent period, he is the climax. Everything they wanted was in him. Everything you need, regardless of what you think you need and what you think you want, everything you need is in him, not in anything or anyone else. It is in him. He is the climax. He is the main event. He is not the support act. There's nothing coming after him that is better. He is the climax of everything. And Matthew couldn't have wound them up more for this announcement, or could he? (laughs) Because he goes on, and we'll pick up on this next week. He goes on to say in verse 18 that Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you read of lots of miraculous births, mainly barren women who should not have children, and God brings forth a child. He puts life where there is no life. And any time that happens, it's an exciting experience. It's a Samson. It's a Samuel. Getting on into the New Testament, it's a John the Baptist. God brings life forth from where there was no life. And God's people know the history of these miraculous births. And whenever Matthew has set this all up and said, Jesus is coming, and then pops in, oh, by the way, this is a miraculous birth. This is a mother who has never been with a man. And at this point, they're on the floor, kicking and screaming in excitement about what is coming. He has, let, he has just set them up for this huge hit. And God has kept the promise alive during the dark waiting of 2,000 years. Genealogies, these lists of names, didn't normally have women in them. This one does. And Jesus, again, is something that I've mentioned several times lately. Jesus set women free from the way they were perceived in the ancient world and the way they were treated. If I was to give you some quotes from ancient history about how men at this time thought about women, you would be deeply offended, ladies. It was pretty grim. Jesus gave them value, gave them equal status, equal worth to men, which they previously didn't have. And some of the women that appear in this list have a pretty checkered history, but I want you to see how even in that checkered history, God keeps the promise alive. Some of you might know that there's a promise of God in your life. But when you look into history, you see events that you think cause that to be disqualified. That it can't happen. There's a woman called Tamar who pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. But God still kept the promise alive. There's a woman called Ruth who was a foreigner. She wasn't even a Jew. She was a Moabite. God still kept the promise alive with her in the list. There's a woman called Bathsheba who committed adultery with King David. God still kept the promise alive. There are weak kings in here, wicked evil men like Ahaz and Manasseh, wicked men in this list, but God still kept the promise alive. There are 14 generations when God's people were in exile and did not have their own ruler. And God still kept the promise alive. There were 400 years when God didn't speak. Prophetic silence. And he still kept the promise alive. Even through all of this chaos and dark waiting of these 2,000 years that Matthew has recorded, God kept the promise alive. The light that we talked about last week, the great light, came at the end of the dark waiting period. And a verse that I mentioned last week as well in Habakkuk 2. Though the vision tarries, though the promise seems to take a long time coming, wait for it. It will come. It will come. This is not a God who fails to keep his promises. This is a God who can take chaos and weave it into an ordered story that brings the great light at the end. He's amazing. He's amazing. And he uses non-Jews and he uses men and women and he uses circumstances that are evil and he weaves it all together to bring about his plan. I want to focus in on two names and they're both in the first verse. They both get extra <coughs> emphasis from Matthew. Let's read the first verse again. This is the book of, of the Genesis, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Both those names are in the list further on, but Matthew picks them both out and holds them front and center and says, notice he's descended from David, he's descended from Abraham. What does it mean? First of all, son of Abraham. What does that mean? The promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, most of you will know it, God said to Abraham, Through you and through your descendants, I will bless all the nations of the earth. That was the promise to Abraham. That was, if you were to just, if if you were to sort of ask what is the one thing that God said he would do through Abraham, he said he would bless all nations. He would bless. If Jesus is the son of Abraham, then he came to bless. And Christmas, we remember him coming. He came to bless. But what does it mean to be blessed? We read a lot in the Bible about God blessing his people. But what does that actually look like? Because we don't read that many verses where he says, I will bless you by doing such and such. We just hear him saying, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. But it's not that often. I can't find that many places where he says, I will bless you by doing this. And we have our own notions about what it means to be blessed, don't we? You know, we, we, if, 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 if we have what we need, we're blessed. Yes, that's correct. But sometimes our, our view of blessing is so small. This week I had a fight. I have this fight about once a year. And I fight with the aga. Mm-hmm. Once a year, me and the aga go flipping 12 rounds because the aga starts misbehaving. The aga, if you're not familiar with it, is about half a ton of cast iron with a fire burning in the middle of it. And every now and again, the fire goes out and me and the aga start to fight. I love the aga the rest of the year, but for a week, I hate it because I have to start battling with it and I have to start pulling the insides out of it and cleaning them to try and get the thing to work. And I was frustrated with with the aga. I I love it. Linda loves it. I have this theory. I've talked about physics, I've talked about Mars. Let's talk about biology. There is a tendon running from the aga to Linda's face. And if the aga's lit, I've got a happy wife. And if the aga's gone out, my wife is not happy. She is cold, (laughs) she is unhappy. But I was battling with it this week on Thursday night and I got the insides all out of it and I cleaned them and I was all proud of myself for getting it all cleaned and not having to pay an engineer to come to do it. And I lit it and I thought this is class and I took a photograph of the flame and I sent it to Linda and I was like, look at this. And an hour later, it went out again. And I was just really annoyed, really annoyed. And at one stage in frustration, I was just like, Lord, would you just bless me by causing this thing to work? I don't want to have to pay someone to come and fix it. And there's a pride issue at stake here as well. Like, So would you please bless me with a fully functioning aga and a smiling wife? And finally, we did, we did get it sorted. It's, 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 it's burning away. But I was reading the next morning in Acts chapter 3 a verse that caused me to think about blessing differently. I love the fact that after... 19 years of following Jesus, you'd still just be challenged in your thinking time and time again. Look at Acts chapter 3, if you would. I want to just point out a wee verse, and it might be worth going to it, it might be worth you know, highlighting it, swiping over it, whatever you do, just to challenge your thinking about what it means to be blessed. It doesn't just mean that there's money in the bank, oil in the tank, food in the cupboards, that, it's, it's more than that. Those things are blessings, thank God for them, but it's more than that. Look at the last verse of Acts chapter 3, where Peter is talking about Jesus. I read this, uh, I think, on Friday morning. God raised up his servant, that's Jesus. And look at this. He sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now there's a clear biblical definition of what it means, or at least part of what it means to be blessed. Peter says that Jesus blesses us by turning us away from sin. Do you realize that's a blessing? Or do you, like me, do you wallow in trivial, little, petty, transient blessings like a cooker that works? And think, oh Lord, bless me with my working cooker. Because what what God challenged me about that morning as I read that was, my ways, David, are higher than your ways. You have no idea how blessed you are. Because I have turned you away from sin you have no idea how big that is compared with these little small things that you want me to fix for you. And he got me just meditating on that and chewing it over the petty, transient little things that I want God to bless when all the while there's this glorious, majestic reality that he has blessed me by turning me away from sin, by giving me an opportunity to repent Sin leads to death. God is not really interested in good and evil. And he's not really interested in right and wrong. God's interested in life and death. He's interested in what are the things that bring life to humanity. And what are the things that bring death. And sin leads to death. And Jesus is the life. And when Jesus came, he blessed us by giving us an opportunity to stop walking towards death and to turn our back on it and start walking towards life. And I'm just having a whole paradigm shift at the minute thinking about what that means and realigning my my understanding of what it means to be a blessed man. If I don't see that as being a massive, awesome blessing then I am not actually really fully understanding how hideous sin is and how it leads to death. Hosea writes as he calls Israel to repentance in Hosea 14.1, he says, return, turn away from your wicked ways. Turn to the Lord. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. We like to think that our circumstances are our downfall. It was what that person did. It was that decision. It was that recession. It was that mistake. It was whatever. It's our sins that are our downfall. Those are the things that lead us to death. How serious are we about turning away from sin? We maybe think, we have in our mind, I don't know about you, but I have in my mind these big sins, you know, the big ones, the really big ones. And we think we're doing well because we're not engaging in the big ones. But yet they're still secret sins. We still flirt with sin. We maybe pride ourselves that we don't visit places on the internet that are offensive to God. But secretly we're obsessed with a celebrity culture that is itself obsessed with sex and beauty and vanity. So while, while we're not Drinking from muddy pools. We're still dipping our toes in the water a lot of that. And Jesus says, I come to bless you by turning you away from that completely. So that you would have life. Does anybody really think that what Jesus has for you is worse than what you could find for yourself? I want you to have life. We've never killed anyone. But we destroy people with our forked tongues. And we think because we've never killed anyone, or we've never punched anyone in the face in a squabble, or we've never said something really nasty to them straight into their, into their face. We, we think to ourselves, we're doing well because we didn't do that this week. But yet, this forked tongue that we have that just destroys people. We flirt and we tolerate this low level, or we see it as a low level of sin. It leads to death. Sin is a master of disguise, folks. It really is. It's a master of disguise. It sneaks up on you and you don't even realize it. Lies at the door waiting. I was convicted this, this week myself in prayer and you might, you might think this is, is a trifling small thing but I was just doing business with God one morning in the kitchen and, and just throwing myself and saying, search me and know me. And show me, Lord, if there's any wicked way within me, show me what it is that is offensive to you. And I don't, you know, I, I, I've learned to fight. I can tell you that in the power of the Holy Spirit, I've learned to fight. I really have learned to fight. I've learned to fight against the big sins. But these little things can creep in And I felt the Holy Spirit just pushing the button one morning this week as I was praying, saying, you don't rejoice enough. My word commands you to rejoice always. You don't rejoice always. You rejoice sometimes. You rejoice whenever circumstances are good. But whenever circumstances are bad and it's harder to rejoice, you don't tend to rejoice as much. You moan, you gurn, and you feel sorry for yourself. And I really just felt just that you're not rejoicing enough. And to rejoice, it might be stating the obvious, but to rejoice is to exercise joy. It's the verb of joy, being joyful. Rejoice is to exercise joy in the Lord. And I've been trying this last few mornings then to just rejoice as I'm seeking God in the mornings. But do you ever do that? Do you ever just really lay yourself open in front of him and say, yeah, Lord, I don't look at things I shouldn't look at and I'm fairly careful with my tongue, but God, rip me open and show me. Is, there, is, there, is sin creeping in in disguise? Are there things that, that are offensive to you that you want to change? So I want to rejoice more. That doesn't mean sing louder. That's a whole posture before God of rejoicing. And it's so important and I'm so aware of it that I have not rejoiced enough in front of my children lately. That I've been strained, that there's pressure on and it's hard just keeping all the plates spinning. And they haven't seen daddy rejoice just as much as he would normally rejoice in December. But God's stirring me to rejoice more. That great verse is it at the end of Habakkuk where he talks about how you know, there's, there's no grapes in the vine and, and the f- crops aren't coming from the fields yet I will rejoice. I will rise above circumstances and I will rejoice. Are we serious about turning from sin? We're talking about Jesus being the son of Abraham who came to bless us, And I'm telling you, one of the definitions of blessing is to turn away from everything that offends God and walk towards Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the communion cup as the cup of blessing. Let that ring with you. That's not the cup of having oil in the tank and food in the cupboards and money in the bank. The cup of blessing, Jesus said, is the cup of the covenant that's poured out For many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do you again see the link between blessing and forgiveness? Blessing and repentance. Blessing and turning away. I don't know if it's changing your thinking, but it's changed mine this week. And there's another cup that Jesus had to drink. Jesus wept in that garden and sweated drops of blood and got on his face before God and said, if you can take this cup away from me, take it away. He had to drink the cup of wrath against sin so that I could drink the cup of blessing of being forgiven from sin. The son of Abraham came to bless us. And as the psalmist says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Realign your thinking, church, about what it means to be blessed. Lastly, and much shorter, he is the son of David. The son of Abraham means he came to bless. The son of David means he came to rule. I did a series this time last year on the kingdom of God. And the whole heart of what I wanted to do was to shift your thinking so that when you read your Bible and you saw the words Jesus Christ on the page, in your mind that became King Jesus. King Jesus. He's the son of David in 2 Samuel 7, David has promised a descendant who will rule and whose reign will never end. Matthew says he's here. Matthew says he has come. He is the king. If somebody gave you a blank piece of paper and a pencil and said, I want you to sort of clear out your mind, don't think about anything, and I'm going to say a word, and when I say the word, I want you to draw the first thing that comes into your mind you got yourself ready with your pencil and your page, and they said, the word is Jesus, what would you draw? Historically, Jesus was a baby in a manger, but I wouldn't draw a manger. I wouldn't draw a stable, although I love that. Historically, Jesus was a corpse on a cross, but I wouldn't draw a corpse on a cross as the first thing that came to mind. Jesus loves me, but I wouldn't draw a heart. i tell you what I would draw on the piece of paper. I would draw a crown because he is my king. And I would draw a throne because right now he is enthroned in glory and he is the king who rules and whose reign will never end. This one that Matthew speaks of, that all these names build up to He's the one that comes to bless and he's the one that comes to rule. And is he your king? And do you know the blessing of turning away from sin? There's a song that tends to break me every time I listen to it and that doesn't happen easy. But it says, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run the fountain I drink from, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days, he is my song. That's John Mark McMillan and I commend him to the house. Is he your song? Is Jesus your song? Because if he's not, you will stop singing. Nothing else will keep you singing. If he is not your song and the king of your heart. So as over the next few weeks, you maybe hear Matthew's gospel read at carol services and you see on cards, and you maybe hear the words, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Realize that this child that we celebrate came to bless you by turning you away from sin. And he came to rule in your heart. Let's pray as Aaron comes to, to lead us.